We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Whoever is on the board, Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dino Weeks, it is a day to remember those who have gave their life so ours could be better. Thank a veteran, lest we forget. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. It's Hamilton today. It's a wet Hamilton today. How appropriate that it is Remembrance Day on this day. Uh, you know, we're sort of sitting right in the middle of a weather change as we've had this unbelievably beautifully, uh, beautiful fall and nice warm temperatures. And obviously, uh, come the weekend, we're heading into cooler climes. But uh, it, it fascinating that, you know, the way Mother Nature works and on this day that we are remembering those who gave so much so we could have what we have uh that we're getting uh drizzly skies some rain heavy rain at times uh it just seems to uh to mark the occasion doesn't it anyway uh hope you are sporting your poppy hope you are uh thinking about those who uh who gave their freedom so we could have ours you know it's interesting this is the first uh remember it's day without my mother sorry Um, I just, uh, I just realized that. And the reason I realized that is because, uh, every Mother's Day, I tell one of her stories. And I will do that today as well, uh, in her memory. So enjoy yourself and enjoy the memories, enjoy the laughs, enjoy those that have left us a better country. And remember that on this Remembrance Day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Steve is on the line. Steve, how you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks, buddy. Sorry for your loss, by the way. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I appreciate that. But uh, anyways, it just hits you like a wave. Yeah, I never I never felt anything. My, my father passed away about 12 years ago. And, you know, I got to the, the side of the coffin and I looked at him and it was just like the world blew up. I, yeah. You know, that's one of those things. But on a lighter note, um, I must say that I was in a variety store buying some stuff for the weekend. And the guy in front of me, he said one of the most simply profound things. Like, yeah, they were, they were saying goodbye and, you know, have a nice weekend and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And this guy said, don't forget to remember. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I you know, being November the 11th, I thought, what a cool thing to say. Yeah. Were they uh, were they older people or younger? Uh, older. Yeah. That's an interesting way of, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's ingrained in them so much that they it's part of their greeting. Yeah. Yeah. It's That's great. Nice. Steve, thanks for the call, and keep remembering. Okay. Yeah, you too. Don't forget to remember. All right. Absolutely. Thanks for the call. On this Remembrance Day, a lot of great people do a lot of great work for uh, those that are in need throughout our community. Community Fridges Ham On is looking for a new home for their Beasley neighborhood fridge due to an uptick in use. 
Community Fridge Ham Aunt runs three fridges uh, over the course or over these neighborhoods that offer free groceries and essential toiletry items to the public. No limit on what the community members can take from the fridges, and they're accessible 24-7 to talk all about this. Haley Humanick is with us, program coordinator with Community Fridges Ham Aunt, and is here now. Haley, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm so happy to be talking to you today, and I just wanted to thank your previous caller, Steve, for that incredibly heartfelt and poignant uh, moment shared with all of your listeners. I, I really uh, I felt that in my heart, and I, I just want to take a moment to say that I think that that's, that's uh, a really big part of what we do in our communities, uh, is we just take a moment to pause and not forget our neighbors. Uh, mm. A lot of our communities uh, feel a little forgotten at times, and a huge part of what we do at Community Fridges Hamon is make sure that all of our community members, all of our neighbors, know that we're here to provide tangible resources, and that uh, there will always be a masked but friendly face at our community fridges to uh, to make sure that... Uh, they, they know that we're there to, to be a listening ear, to make sure that there are tangible supports and donations from a variety of uh, thoughtful, caring, and compassionate folks that are there to, to show up. And Haley, to, uh, Haley give, us a, give us a little backstory about Community yeah, Fridges, please. what it's all about, uh, what yeah, it is. Yeah, do it. Yeah, so um, we actually have been around uh, for quite some time, but the beginning really started um, at our first location uh, in uh, the Gilkson neighborhood. So our host partner up there um, has helped us tremendously with uh, starting the momentum across the city. So we've got three fridges, as you mentioned, and um, we have... A complete volunteer-run mutual aid, community for community, solidarity, not charity. We're volunteer-run, and we provide low barrier, um, publicly accessible um, access to supplies 24-7, and that includes the donation drop-offs as well. So we started um, with our first location at um, 44 Greendale in the Gilson neighborhood, and that's with our today's family, early learning and child care. Uh, center. And then we grew from there. In June 2021, we have our Beasley location launching um, in the Beasley neighborhood, Merritt Brewing Warehouse. And that's a location that we're looking for a new spot just based on how much need there is. We really want to find a location that meets the needs of the community members based on high visibility, a, a greater inflow of donations. Um, this initiative is really all about resource sharing and a genuine commitment to community. And we really want to sh- ensure at this time that we can meet those needs and it can be sustainable. Um, our third location is in Crown Point East, and that's at our Ottawa Market Market Box host partner site. So right now, and- our focus is just to help keep that momentum going and provide a great transition to um, keep our Beasley community support going. How do you get donations? How do you keep the fridges open? Great question. The fridges remain open through 100% volunteer-run mutual aid. So to keep them going, we need donations from all of our local community members and businesses and vendors. So we rely a lot on all of our 
folks, friends, families, neighbors to host food drives, uh, to have groceries, vendors, and those out there who are willing to help us rescue food. That's a huge part of our mission. Um, We provide all of our donation guidelines online. So we have some guidelines to make sure that we can maintain the dignity of these spaces, to to maintain and ensure the fact that if I went to the fridge, if you went to the fridge, because they're for everyone to access, that if I show up, I make sure that I know that I would want to eat from the fridge to take from the fridge as well. So you can find all of that information, not only on our brochures that are on site, but through all of the information that we have on our social platforms, as well as if you want to reach out to our email. We have a fleet of volunteers that are happy to support and provide additional info. And what about the new space that you're looking for? What exactly are you looking for? How close are you to finding one? We've had a lot of amazing conversations with our community. Folks have been helping us look for spots, um, provide contacts. A lot of the uh, considerations we make are very thoughtful. They're based on uh, a mix of considerations. Um, Because we're modeled after the philosophy of take what you need and leave what you can, we really want to make sure that we have um, a location that is in a community that has local vendors that can provide, you know, accessibility for an influx of donations. We really want to ensure that there's good foot traffic, foot traffic, pedestrian activity. Um, we want to ensure that it's well lit. We need to ensure that our volunteers who maintain these structures can also provide repairs. Having volunteers that can also easily get to the location is really important as well because we clean these fridges every day, multiple times a day, two times at our one location and three times at the other so that we can make sure that the temperatures are correct, that it's a dignified and clean space. Hmm. These are all important for all of our community members to understand that it's a very thoughtful process. Haley Hummernick is with us, Program Coordinator, Community Fridges, Ham On, and uh, looking for a new location for their Beasley operation and always looking for your help. You can look at various uh, platforms and find them. Uh, Community Fridges, Ham On. Haley, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with this. We're so grateful. Thank you for the time and the conversation. And if anyone can show up, volunteer, donate, spread the word. Just remember, don't forget your neighbors. We're here. We care. And let's keep us safe. Thank you, Haley. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, it is Remembrance Day. And uh, what does it mean to have Remembrance Day ceremonies back to in-person? For many years, uh, Mr. Lo Schiavo organized a full day of activities for all students at Ancaster Meadow Elementary School each November 11th to commemorate Mar- uh, remember, uh, Remembrance Day and Canada's military veterans. He joins us after assisting at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum this morning to discuss... Uh, Remembrance Day 2022. Uh, Mr. Lowe, Mr. Lo uh is a retired Ancaster history or Ancaster Meadow history teacher and with us now. Mr. Lowe, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Scott, doing very well, and thanks for this great opportunity once again. It must be times like this where you miss being in class and sharing these kind of days. I do. I do. I, I got an email or a text from the school this morning. They're keeping on with that great tradition. I did 
do a speech uh, for them, and they presented it in front of the students this morning, and I did do the reading of in Flanders Fields for my school. So I do miss So them. that's great. That's great. So uh, what what did you do every year? What was the tradition? So we started with, uh, we had a grade uh, uh, 4 to 8 assembly. We would do it in the gym, then a K to 3 assembly. We focused on Canada's military tradition. And I focused a lot on the freedoms, but I focused on the veterans, which are getting fewer and fewer every year. And I focused the need to thank these veterans for the freedoms you enjoy, the freedom to go to school, to play sports, to practice your faith, it came at a very heavy cost. And we go through Canada's history in World War One. I, I was my grade sevens and eights. We discussed the Battle of Passchendaele, the great victory at Vimy Ridge. We would do reading assignments about it. We would do the veteran stories, what they went through. Many of them were not much older than my grade eights. Hmm. What was their reaction when you would tell them these stories? Because I'm guessing that a regular class is one thing, but when you talk about something like this, the interest uh, peaks up. You tell them stories like they were just, someone lied about their age, they were 17, they were 16. For them, it was a great adventure until they went over there and found out it wasn't. And I said to many of them, it's, it's hard to imagine you right there, you know, sitting in your desks and you have your cell phones. There were no cell phones back then. But this was, for some, for some, a great adventure to get away from the farm, to get away from the city, to see what's going on over there and then realize, what have I gotten into? And they said, Mr. Lowe, you know, this is unbelievable. Like, some of these kids were not much older than me and... We read the stories of Andrew Winarski was one of them from, I would tell that story every year to my grade sevens and eights and many others from the veterans. And we'd have a few veterans come in and, you know, they were interested in knowing that, um, you know, this went on many, many years ago and the story still persists. And we made it, uh, I made it in fact that be thankful for where you are because these veterans, these men, these women gave you your freedom today. As much, do you think, Mr. Lowe, there's as much interest as there once was? Because I remember, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm about 60 years old. Yeah, well, no, I am. And, and, and so I, I remember a time when, you know, the, the post-World War II uh, time had ended and it sort of drifted off for a bit. But now with Afghanistan and what we've seen our military do in the last couple of decades and such, there seems to be a renewed interest, a, a renewed appreciation. Is that accurate, do you think? I, I think it is. I think the renewed interest, I think Scott came after the 9-11 attacks. Yeah, I good think, point. Uh, I think after that, you were right. I remember um, many days when I was in school, it was, you know, you stop for a minute and read Flanders Fields, and, and that was about it, you mm-hmm. know. And, um, but I think after 9-11, the significance of remembering came more as an impact I know in Ontario, all uh, schools must do some type of Remembrance Day service, and that's good because you can't you can't ignore history. You can't ignore where you are today. What was it like for you up at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum? Well, it was packed. Um, two thousand people, first time in two years. Um, you know the speeches, the um, a number of people there. A few schools showed up, some students showed up, I helped them. It was nice to see the young faces again, nice to see the faces in person, nice to see people coming out and paying and paying respect on this 
special day for those who gave us the right to attend these types of services and to thank them. How important is it to be doing these in person again? The last two and a half years have been pretty difficult. Most important. Now's the chance to get together, to shake hands with a veteran, to wear your poppy, to put it on proudly for all to see, to smile, to to sing O Canada together as a gathering, as a great nation, or to, to sing their national anthem, which I did today, was great, to be proud of this great nation. This great nation is not perfect by far, but it is. It is a great nation, and it was made largely because of the people we thank today. I remember uh, having a chance to meet a, a couple of the Argyles. This is many years ago and whatever. And and as you you were right, it was post nine eleven, and 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 just having a chat and whatever. And at the end, saying, "Hey, thank you." And they you could see in their face they even though you'd sat there and talked to them for five minutes, the, you know the the fact that at the end of it, you just said, "Hey, thanks for." for all of this yeah, and just the lighthearted like it's amazing the impact that has a Lancaster potted today 102 years old I thanked him I thanked him for for what he did you know for for all of us for my age group and for you know the children you see out there and to thank him you know because as you all as the saying goes freedom freedom is not free do you think that the, there was that lull, uh, you know, and, and every year we talk about how there's there's less and less veterans that, yeah. that we can talk to on this, at least from the from WW2. Uh, a lot of this stuff didn't get out. I mean, it was you go home, yeah, you live with it in, in, every, in whatever way you could, and you just never talked about it. And that sort of was the way for, for a generation or so. And now it seems we've gotten past that and even just some of the stories we're hearing i mean my goodness it's it's incredible yeah it's you know like there's you know like i said i talk about the 9-11 attacks and i think also um you know a movie called saving private ryan when that came out i think that brought a lot of people to realize and a lot of people stepped forward and i remember speaking to one veteran he said to me on the beach it was far worse than that you know, yeah, you, know, yeah. And you can only imagine. People, yeah, people started talking, you know, and it's it, and you can't, like I said, you can't ignore history. You can't ignore where we are right now. We owe, we owe these veterans, those who serve right now, a great deal of thank every day for putting on that uniform. You know, when we sit and watch them at Cenotaphs or wherever during these these uh, memorials, commemorations and such, you, you can see in their eyes, you wonder what they're thinking. You yeah. wonder where they are in that instant, if they're back there or if they're just caught in the moment and admiring the people that have come out to, to pay tribute or if they're back there for a few seconds. You know, I think looking around today, some of the veterans who looked around and I think they really appreciated the turnout again to see and to they're all there to thank them i know and they they, some of the veterans just looked around and smile on their face that these people came to thank them yeah you know it's fascinating i remember my mother saying because i I remember talking to my mother when she's still alive uh, about when the the lancasters were or the lancaster was up and flying again and uh unfortunately for her it was the sound she couldn't handle the sound anymore it just took her back to that to that uh time and it it, sometimes we forget about that yeah there were you know hundreds if not thousands of them in the sky and they, they would they would they would just be deafening 
Mr. Low Shiaba with us, a.k.a. Mr. AKA Mr. Low, retired Ancaster Meadow history teacher involved at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum uh, today, this morning. And uh, the school continues on in his honor with sure what he do. started way back when. Mr. Low, thanks so much again for sharing the time, spreading the word. As always, greatly appreciate it. Scott, thanks for all the hard work you do and you're in, too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots of talk about uh, masking and what we should do. Should they be mandatory? Should they not? Should we be using them here? Should we be using them there? And I think the difference is this time out than last time is where it's not necessarily about COVID-19 and a variant that is, is deadly or anything of that nature. It's about the spread of uh, Omicron and uh, the various flus, whether it's seasonal or the respiratory uh, virus that we are seeing uh, going around in the kids and such but all of this has put extra stress on our healthcare system so now uh here we go again are we masking up but again not so much to keep us safe but to keep the canadian healthcare system safe uh let's bring in dr timothy sly epidemiologist professor emeritus school of population public health toronto metropolitan university and with us now tim thank you for your time i hope you're well Absolutely, Scott. Thank you. What's your message here, Tim? <laughs> well, we're well, looking. You know, people talk about the triple threat. I think we've got about a, a quintuple threat here at the moment. As you said right off the top, we've got uh, we've got really new variants appearing, and we're a little uncertain about how just how, how nasty they are. Uh, basically, two of them uh, we're keeping an eye on: BQ11 and BQ2752. So far, they're not really in our mid-spreading, but they could be. At the moment, it's still it's still old. BA, BA5 is about 93% of Canadian infections at the moment. The second thing is, of course, that people have dropped their basic protection. Uh, the, the, the masks, you see them littering all over the place, and we've got to try and somehow reverse that a little bit. The third one is the winter season is upon us, so we're going to be back inside in the basement and the bar and, and so on. The fourth one is that uh, other viruses all come to light in this season as well, as you mentioned, respiratory syncytial virus and the parainfluenza virus and all the rhinoviruses and so on. And lastly, of course, is our immunity has dropped. I mean, how many people do you know in your in your circle or your neighbors who've had uh, influenza in this last couple of mm-hmm. uh, couple of winters? It's it's virtually off the map, and now suddenly it's coming back again because we've lost our back background immunity and the masks off, and so we're wide widely vulnerable again. So, um, what about obviously everybody should get their boosters and all that up to date, but this isn't necessarily COVID related. Should we make sure we're getting our flu shots? I mean, what can we do other than masking? Well, we'll come back to masking, but can we, what about the shots? Is there anything that can help, uh, do to help? Oh, the shots will absolutely help. I and mean, we assume that everybody's got the uh, taken advantage of whatever shots are available to them, whatever they're eligible for. Uh, nothing in this thing, since you and I have been talking about this since early 2020, uh, uh, has been 100%. The vaccines are the same, but they offer substantial uh, uh, protection against serious illness and hospitalization. That's what we're really worried about. The hospitalization part is particularly important. If you hear the r- reports, uh, look at the news, they're swamped again. This time, not so much with, with COVID, but it can't, COVID is going to complicate things. You've got full of mm-hmm. people and especially children now are suffering from uh, four to five times the normal uh, uh, incidence of respiratory 
syncytial virus that appears from time to time, but this time it's a really bad year. And I suspect, looking at the charts from the US and, and Southern Hemisphere, this is going to be a bad year as well for influenza. It started earlier, and it's climbing uh, earlier in its curve than we've seen it in previous years. Uh, and it's simply because we've lost the immunity to that. We haven't been circulating. You know, the, this is, this, you see, Scott, is another bit of evidence that the masks actually work. They have worked against the normal background infections that we normally get, the common cold, which is about 200 different viruses, influenzas, and so on. So they do work. So and if, the, if we were not sliding into another uh, possible wave, if we were the, really the end of the pandemic and into the endemic, uh, I'd be telling you, okay, gently, let's get, let's take the masks off and go back to the normal situation, uh, you know, as much as we can, protecting older people, but let's build up that immunity again. But at the moment... Let me ask you that, Tim, because that's where I'm a little confused here, because, um, you know, obviously people are out and about, there isn't masking, maybe the flu shots aren't as heavy as they should be, what have you, um, but obviously immunity is down because we've had been masking for the last two and a half years. So how do you balance immunity being down because not having a mask and then saying, well, put the mask back on because that will further delete you uh, immunity, will it not? You remember that phrase at the beginning, uh, Scott, in 2020, we were all talking about flattening the curve. <laughs> you remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah, that's, what yeah. we're, that's what we're doing now. That's what we're doing now. The curve is now shooting straight up, and it's a really mixed bunch of viruses contributing to this. And so if that wasn't the case, I'd be saying, yeah, okay, if, if, the, right. if the COVID was under control, and so on. Let's let's try and reestablish that nice, healthy background immunity in the in the school classroom, on the subway, and so on. But, but flatten the curve that, first. Yeah, flatten the curve. That's what we need to do: is flattening the curve. It, it, it's 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 crippling the uh, emergency rooms now. There's kids waiting in the in the corridors to be to be seen, and a lot of them are turning blue. They can't properly breathe because of uh, these other viruses. So we got to sort of take the edge off the whole picture slow things down so uh you're recommending on masking what are your thoughts what's the message well no public health person likes to use the word mandate i mean that goes back to uh, uh, authoritarian government and so on however uh we're going to encourage encourage set examples i mean how many times do politicians wear masks on tv now you don't see that very often i'd like Mm. to see that coming back so set the examples encourage encourage but if, if people don't do it and I think we might have to think about the dreaded word mandate again. Uh, look at the difference between asking people to do it and they voluntarily do it and everybody's happy doing it and they're being forced to do it because we all dig in our heels a little bit and say, you know, don't tell me what to do. And this is a common yeah. reaction. So much better if we can encourage people to do it. And it's cheap, it's easy, it's convenient. In most cases, it costs nothing. It doesn't interfere with your day. And it is effective to a great deal, to a great, great extent. Tim, is this happening in other places? Is this, is this happening in the U.S.? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was looking at the figures from the U.S. only two days ago, and they're, they're seeing uh, real spikes now going up. Uh, not, not in every single center, but certainly some of the large cities, they're seeing this increase again. Again, mixed virus again. Uh, we've, we've, we've lost that. I, I guess in some of the areas where they shun the mask, 
you know, uh, for, for a long time, it, maybe their immunity didn't go away as far much as it did here, where we were successful mm. in keeping it out. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but it's happening all over the place. In fact, the Southern Hemisphere as well, we're seeing this increase. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, professor emeritus, School of Population and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. As always, doctor, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Continuing our Remembrance Day conversations, Tim Fletcher joins us, retired Army Captain, the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry Historian, and is with us now. Tim, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. All doing well, Scott. First of all, tell us about your career, Tim. Tell us about your time. Well, I joined uh, in uh, 1976 and served 36 years. I started as uh, as an infantry uh, officer uh, because that was the career path open at the time, and then uh, later on moved into uh, the public affairs branch, uh, essentially as a publicist for the military, uh, once that became a, a full trade in the military. And um, got to do a lot of things, uh, traveled uh, to different places, uh, exercising in... Uh, the United States, and uh, I did a, a brief NATO mission uh, to uh, Ukraine in 2000 um, to try and explain NATO-style uh, public affairs to the Ukrainian army on a NATO Partnership for Peace mission, kind of a highlight of my career. That was uh, an interesting time in, uh, in post-Soviet, uh, post-Russia Ukraine. And uh, beyond that, just... Uh, doing what so many uh, tens of thousands of reservists do, uh, one night a week, uh, kind of one weekend a month, uh, getting paid to do something that I really, really, truly loved and, and love to this day. What attracted you to the military? <laughs> well, kind of a long story, but I'll keep it brief. Uh, I was a reporter at the time at a radio station in St. Catharines, and um the CO of the Lincoln and Welland Regiment, my first regiment, sent a circular around to various media in St. Catherine saying we're having this exercise and who wants to tag along? And uh, I was foolish enough to put my hand up, so off I went to Big Petawawa for a, a weekend on my own, on my own dime, as it were. I volunteered to do it, uh, and I sort of began going on this extra exercises until one day the CO kind of half joking. He said, look, you've hung around here long enough that you either join or stop hanging around. <laughs> so, so I joined. <laughs> now, I have to admit, it's a long history. My my dad was in the Army before transferring to the Air Force. Um, my grandfather was uh, shot and wounded in World War II shortly after D-Day. My great-grandfather served, and my great-great-grandfather was British Army came over for the Second Riel Rebellion um, from England. And uh, uh, so it goes back at least that far in our family. Uh, I've had two brothers who served, uh, and my son is uh, currently serving. So it's in the blood, per se. It is now, that's for sure. It, um, there's several generations of history there. What does this day mean to you, then, considering the family history with you? Well, first and foremost, I, re I remember those who, who paid the ultimate price uh, for their service. Uh, we, we have to remember that most Canadians in, in the wars were volunteers, so we're later in the war 
some conscription, but few of those saw action and fewer of those lost their lives. But they all paid the ultimate uh, price for their service. Uh, many more came home and became very productive citizens and helped build this country into what it is today on the backs of those who died, giving their freedom to do that. But, but more than that, Remembrance Day to me represents a legacy of service beyond self, if I can put it that way. People who have stepped up to the plate with nothing in it for them except potential death and serve their country uh, for people in other countries that they never knew and for people back here to preserve their freedom. It doesn't get much more definition of service than that. What type of person signs up? Maybe let me well, rephrase that. What type of person makes a, a good soldier? Well, um, the person who makes a good soldier is someone... Uh, who is not afraid of hard work. They initially might not know that. That's the funny thing. They might get attracted first. Uh, currently in the Army Reserve, if you join uh, now, you are guaranteed uh, as a student or whatever, but you're guaranteed full-time summer employment for the next four years, plus benefits, plus uh, assistance with your educational costs, so some people might say, well, that's a good deal, and I'm going to mm-hmm. join up for that, do my four years, and then sayonara. And, and God bless them, and we can use those people. But they get in, and then it does get in the blood, and then they stay because they have made incredible friendships that will literally last a lifetime. Uh, they encounter experiences that very few others uh, not in the military will ever encounter. Uh, either on deployments, on training, on exercises here, uh, assisting fellow Canadians in time of flood or disaster, um, sitting in Latvia as part of a NATO forward presence brigade um, and facing off against Russia with their current aggression, helping train others in Ukraine. These are not abstract concepts for a reservist. In Afghanistan, at one point, about 30% of all soldiers there were reservists. I personally lost... uh, friend, the reservist in Afghanistan from my first regiment. Um, So uh, they might join initially for uh, benefits that are offered, or they might join because a friend joined, or they might join because they do have this terrific sense or need for adventure. But they stay because of the lived experience that they encounter once they're in. Tim Fletcher with us, retired Army Captain, Royal Hamilton Light Infantry and Historian. Tim, uh, thank you so much for sharing your story, and thank you for serving your country and us. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Putting on a mask is a very reasonable thing to do right now, especially in indoor settings and especially in the context of widespread viruses circulating in the community. It just it makes a lot of sense. You know, question is, do mandates work? They absolutely do. We know if there's a yeah. mandate, more people put on masks. But can we get to a similar place without doing a mandate? Uh, so I guess the the uh, message here is um, you should mask up if you're vulnerable, certainly, uh, if you're going into situations or 
uh, all the time. Mandating? No, I don't think we're going to see that because the reason we're masking is not the same as it was before. Uh, that being said, the messaging is key here. And to talk about how well we're doing and all that, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you for having me on, Scott. So, Alyssa, we thought the masking messaging was kind of confusing first time around. Um, I, what do you do? What do you do with this? What do you do? Because here's number one: we're not masking to save each other's lives. We're masking to save uh, exhausting the already exhausted healthcare system. What are your thoughts? You know what? I'm just going to go anecdotal on this. So. Um I work in uh, a family business and we are a um, authorized Herman Miller and old dealer. So people come in and they buy task chairs. So I sit in, in the back here with my windowed office and I see people come in and I will tell you everybody who came in today, Scott, they all had masks on. Really? Okay. And this is not us saying, put on your mask. Yeah. Um, and our, the, the uh, sales manager who helps these people, he's now starting to put a mask on because, uh, you know, it's important for him in terms of um, his family, mm-hmm. which is fine. So I think that we're at the point where this is more like common sense. If you're going to dig your heels in and you don't want to wear a mask and then you wonder why you got sick, don't come crying to, to me or yeah. to anybody. <laughs> yeah. However, me personally, Scott, I'll go into my grocery store. It's a smaller one. It's family run. I will tell you that 80% of the people have masks on. And again, not a mandate to wear masks, not a, not a request from the store owners to wear masks. They have their masks mm-hmm. on. If you go into, let's say, a shopper's drug mart where people are often there because, you know, especially if they're by the prescription counter because maybe they're sick, um, I'll put a mask on. So I think that people have now learned that, you know, for two years we had masks on, it was mandated and nobody got a cold and nobody got a cough and nobody got the flu. But now all that stuff is rampant. We're not masking as much. So if you're going to put two and two together, and if it's important to you to walk around with a mask because of it, then people are going to do so. Yeah. But, and and I think at this point, you know, we're highly suggesting in many cases, especially if you have a compromised immune system, that you, you do. So, for example, I was, I met yeah, yesterday with the past president of the CMA, uh, Dr. Catherine Smart, and and I was at a mm-hmm. uh, somewhere where there was a lot of doctors, and they were all saying hospitals are crazy right now. And when yeah. a friend of mine works over at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, and she says we're two hundred and forty percent over capacity because of kids all coming down with RSV. And then you go into the, 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 the store and to go buy infant Tylenol and there's none on the shelves. So I think that people have to take matters into their own hands. If they want to protect themselves, if they're looking to protect their loved ones, put on a mask. We have enough information now that we know that if you put it on, it works. It does stop the spread of, of germs, especially if you're in close quarters with other, other people. If you choose not to wear a mask, okay, well, you know the reasons that you're not doing that too. But I yeah. would have to say that generally, Scott, at this point, we know we have information to make our own decisions. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. And, and you know, Ontarians, Canadians, they're going to do what's right. I mean, and the surveys have, have shown that. Um, is it different now? Because And again, at the end of the day, people will do what's right. So let's move that off the table. Um, but is it different now um, because we're doing it to save the healthcare system, which many of us still think is flawless, and um, as opposed to saving lives, will this and, and, and where I'm going here is will this finally direct attention to our Canadian healthcare system and give it the attention it needs? We're not doing this to save each other's lives. We're doing it because our healthcare system is failing and our poor healthcare workers are on their knees. Are, is this going to redirect attention to that? Less about the mask and the reason why we're doing it this time. Well, that's a really great point that you bring up. So let's remember that last week, the health ministers met in Vancouver. And there were many stakeholders there, including the Canadian Medical Association, who said, listen, here's your prescription. This is what we need. This is what we need you to do. You know, there were three points. Come up with a better health human resource strategy. Consider um, national licensure so that doctors can go from one province to another and practice if they want. So the president of the the CMA, Dr. Alika Lafontaine, he lives in Grand Prairie. You know, they want him for a few hours um, in Saskatchewan. Well, for him to do that, he's got to go through nine to 12 months of applying for a license to go. It's ridiculous. And so here we have them all in a room and they're all charged by their premiers either to say nothing or to say something. So did anything really come out of that meeting, Scott? Not really. You know, they want health transfers with no strings attached to the money. So, you know, they get the money and maybe they spend it on health care, Scott, and maybe they don't. So it's like, you know, when you, you would give your uh, uh, child an allowance, you would say, okay, I'm going to give you five bucks to shovel the driveway. Well, the driveway's not shoveled. You don't get the five bucks. And so the fact that provinces are asking for more money, which is okay, I get that, but they don't want it with strings attached to ensure that the money goes to the people to help the province, the healthcare system. I think that people are starting to see through this, Scott. And I yeah, think but let, let, let's be honest. Yeah. You've got you've got you've got provinces that represent every single political stripe, whether it's NDP, Liberal, or or Conservative. And I was told as well this: as much as there's value to what you're saying, and there is, it's also as who gets credit for this. Does the provinces do the province get credit for it, or does uh, the federal government get credit for it? Uh, you know, for example, the, the federal government's talking about we want to need we need a national database, which is very true. That would be great to have. But is it the number one thing that is bugging more most uh, municipalities now? No, it's they, they need family doctors and the emergency yeah, rooms are but clogged. You know what, Scott? You know, you're talking about band-aid solutions here that have been bandied about for the last no. 20 years. Hey, I'm every all for report, a new template. Report, I'm all for a new template. About, excuse me, saving the healthcare system has been shelved or put in a drawer and collecting dust. And it's the same recommendations year over year over year. I think this is less about getting credit and actually doing something with the money that you're given. And when it comes to a database, Scott, that is one of the big problems. You know, Premier Ford says, I'm going to give you 2,000 nurses. Well, gee, where should those nurses go? Do we need 2,000 nurses? Should they be in Northern Ontario, Southern Ontario, Eastern Ontario? What's their skill set? Uh, nothing. We don't know who is doing what, where. We're so you're blaming. You think this is more the province's issue, the province's problem, than the feds? I think it's both equally, Scott. Yeah. I think it's both equally. But when you're talking about giving out money, and 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 provinces are saying, "I don't want any strings attached." 
What does that say to me? Not just as a commentator. Well, you know what it says to me, Alyssa? It says it's a carbon tax. (laughs) No, no, no. Oh, my gosh, God. All right, let's leave it there. Let's leave it there. Hey, have yourself... Elon Musk. No, I'm... (laughs) Next time. Next time. All right, you have yourself a great weekend, and stay safe, stay healthy. All right, I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks for having Uh me on, Scott. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Remembrance Day 2022 edition, and uh, probably the first one in a long time where uh, people have uh, actually been able to get together and commemorate this day as opposed to uh, virtually, which is great to see. Many, or pretty much all schools, doing something in and around uh, Remembrance Day and various projects and such. Uh, and that's the same at Cathedral High School. We want to introduce you to Vince Lepore, teacher at Cathedral High School, who is behind the school's Wall of Distinction project. To talk more about this, Vince is with us now. Vince, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great, Scott. I hope you're doing well as well. Yep. Thanks so much for the time. Uh, obviously, there's two projects here, the Wall of Distinction and uh, the War Memorial Project. But let's concentrate on the Wall of Distinction. Give us a bit of back history here uh, and what it's all about. Well, firstly, the Wall of Distinction is um, a way for a cathedral to pay a tribute to its uh, notable and distinguished alumni over the last 110 years. And um, for our Wall of Distinction, uh, we have, um, over a period of five years, been able to research and um, create plaques um, honoring 154 cathedral alumni spanning uh, from as far back as 1914. In 1914, we had our first graduate, Monsignor Neville Anderson, who was the only graduate of Cathedral in 1914. And I'll tell you why, because Cathedral was established in 1912, and Monsignor Anderson was able to finish four years of high school and pass provincial exams in two years. That's why he was the only graduate of 1914. Wow. Wow. He gets an extra asterisk beside his name. That's uh, that's incredible. So who does the research here? How does this work? Well, um, I've been able to um, um, accu- accumulate uh, and amass a research team, uh, a team consisting of cathedral alumni and also just friends of cathedral as well as just historians uh, in the city. Um, just well-intentioned, good people who want to um, share the wonderful historical stories of people in our community. And is there student involvement? What What is their involvement in this? Well, uh, the student involvement would mostly be students who um, were graduates uh, because of the onerous amount of work involved in this Um uh, we, we've relied on uh, alumni more than current students. Right. Now, the current students uh, play roles in so many things, like, for example, our incredible Remembrance Day Assembly today, right? But in terms of that project, the research has been done by by uh, alumni. And what is the reaction to, uh, from students when they see the history yeah. that's uh, uh, been through Cathedral High School? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's really it's something to behold. The students are absolutely inspired by this, and they it's really interesting to see. Uh, 
they truly believe that they are a part of greatness. And what I love is when uh, I happen to be walking by the wall of distinction and a student or a group of students will be looking at it and reading because there's just a, uh, a full spectrum of amazing graduates, I'll have students stop me and point at the wall and say, sir, one day I'm going to be on that wall. And I got to wow. say, Scott, they're serious. It's amazing once you teach history how it makes people feel a part of the tradition. Absolutely. I've always uh, experienced that in my personal life, but I certainly see it through the, um, the students as well. And how far back? What, what, what is the history? How old is Cathedral? Well, Cathedral's uh, 110 years old. It was established in uh, 1912. It started at St. Mary's um, School, uh, where the location of St. Mary's Church is. And then in nine, and it was started initially for boys. That was in 1912. And then in 1915, they, um, they started uh, having girls at 10 High School as well. And um, the boys moved uh, to St. Pat's in 1921. Then in 1928, they moved to the, uh, st- the historic building of Maine and Emerald. And uh, from there, 1995, the, uh, we have the, the boys and school, uh, girls school together at Cathedral and other girls. They, uh, they started in 1915. The first graduates, there were six of them, graduated in 1919. Then they followed the boys to St. Pat's. Then um, in 1955, the girls' school on Main Street opened. And it was interesting that we have some amazing pictures uh, from the, the girls' school opening, and the ribbon was uh, cut by uh, the mayor of Hamilton at the time, Lloyd D. Jackson. So students hmm. were quite interested in that because of Jackson Square, of course. Uh, so when did this project start? When did you start this wall? Um, where, how did this come about? We started this over five years ago, okay? The Wall of Distinction, right? Over five years ago. I was approached by um, two uh, individuals who are um, historic figures at Cathedral High School, uh, Jim Daly, who is the former principal of Cathedral and... Um, the former uh, director of education for the Catholic School Board, and Mark Daly, the uh, famous basketball player who's now the principal of Cathedral. Um, they approached me to oversee this project. Initially, I had some hesitation because I was involved in other major projects, but uh, then I eventually um, started reading about the history, and um, there was a particular story that actually prompted me to... Um, uh, to begin uh, this um, major endeavor. And that's when uh, I was reading about a guy by the name of Ed King, who um, went to Cathedral. He graduated in 1928. He was a great athlete. He came from Alberta. But then in 1930, uh, they were going to have they had the first British Empire Games, right, which were in uh, Hamilton. Right, yeah. And so Billy Shering, who, cro- who helped coach the track and field at Cathedral, uh, he ran a road race. And uh, this Ed King was a good athlete, didn't run track at Cathedral. Uh, he went in the road race. Billy Shering um, went crazy when he found out how well he did, and he's, he told him that he was going to train him. This is Ed King. And um, uh, he was trained by Billy Shering at the Hamilton Olympic Club. And then um, he ran, this is Ed King, he, he ran in the British Empire Games. And at that time, he was discovered by uh, track and field coach at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. 
and he went on a track scholarship at Notre Dame. Ed King became a, a multiple-year miler champion in Canada. He qualified in two events in 1932 Olympics in Los Angeles in the finals. He couldn't run in the finals. This has all been like corroborated. Uh, but he couldn't run in the finals because uh, he was injured. Uh, and, and, and so he continued with track and field. But here's the reason why I eventually, after reading this, said I, I'm going to do this. Uh, he came back to Cathedral after that. He didn't have to. He came back to Cathedral, and he started track and field to help the kids at the school. This guy wow. was, in my opinion, uh, a terrific role model in how he gave back. And then he eventually went back to Alberta, and nobody ever heard of him. It was only one footnote I read somewhere, and I had to um, research him. And uh, then I eventually um, connected with the University of Notre Dame to get his story. Um, so that's how it started. Now, I'll just say that in the last three years, we have focused on a war memorial, right? Because mm-hmm. there were 74 cathedral students who uh, were killed in action during the war. I'll mm-hmm. just tell you, Scott, that in uh, the ni- late 1930s and uh, you know early and mid-40s, there were maybe about 250 cathedral boys uh, in the school per year, but well over in, say, World War II, well over 500 cathedral students served in the war. Okay? Wow. And uh, we, wanted to rec- we wanted to recognize uh, those students. Now, uh, in 1947, the cathedral student body raised $5,000 uh, for a monument um, honoring, at that time, 59 cathedral students who they had known mm-hmm. were killed in the war. So that was in 1947, um, a statue um, with um, a marble sculpture of the Blessed Virgin Mary and a stone base with 59 inscribed names. Okay, that's 47. And it was blessed by the legendary Bishop uh, Ryan, Bishop, Bishop Joseph Ryan. Now, 1947, that's exactly 75 years ago when today uh, the Bishop of Hamilton, His Excellency um, Bishop Douglas Crosby, he blessed the new war memorial at Cathedral 75 years later. Wow. What, I'm getting chills up my spine here, Vince. Uh, what a great, what a great story. What a great, le- uh, what a great lesson here and, and an example for the kids. Vince Lepore with his teacher at Cathedral High School, uh, the Wall of Distinction Project, and of course, uh, the War Memorial Project as well, which was uh, unveiled today. Vince, thanks so much for the time. Good luck moving forward. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The school day game is coming up. Let's uh, talk to Reed Duthie, play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. He is with us now. Reed, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, Scott, always doing well when I get to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. All right, let's talk about the dogs. Having a tough season, a tough start this year. Tough start, but the signs of improvement are there. I, I thought the Bulldogs uh, got the short end of it a bit last night uh, in Barry with two players uh, sent out of the hockey game and uh, both on calls that I didn't personally think needed to be made, but those are the breaks. And after a 2 1 shootout win, a very emotional one with Lucas Moore scoring the shootout winner in his hometown, uh, it feels like that things are starting to move in the right direction. A five goal outburst last night, two games this weekend, one against Mississauga, they're a tough test, and then against the uh, Oshawa Generals on the road, uh, again, a winnable contest. So the Bulldogs, they've started to move that in the right direction again. 
just got to get back to how they started at three and one. How difficult is it coming off a great season that you had last year? And I mean, you know, really, when you think about it, these teams are are constantly rebuilding. They're constantly a work in progress from one season to the other, aren't they? Well, and that's the thing. And and that's why you have to have patience in the junior hockey game, because you love seeing, obviously, what the Bulldogs did last year, historic run to the 2022 OHL championship. But you know there's going to be some changeover. There's going to be some growing pains with some young players getting into the lineup. But part of the fun of junior hockey is seeing those young players come through. And whether it's your Cole Browns or your Braden O'Keefe's, your Lucas Morris, Florian Jacki, and Adrian Rebello, these are all guys that are going to be impact players. They just need time and opportunity. And now they're getting the opportunity. It's just going to take them a little bit of time. And once they find that it factor – well, then you're going to see another really impressive group of young Bulldogs. All right, Wednesday, November 16th, the uh, the school day game. Talk about this. Uh, this has been a success since the very first one, hasn't it? Oh, this is one of my favorites every year. And, of course, this year, uh, two school day games, uh, one in December as well. And for your fans listening on that are trying to win tickets to this, this is exclusive because these games, the school day games, not necessarily open to the public. So hmm. fans trying to get in, I mean, it's it's got to be season's tickets is the only way that you yeah. can get into this because we're going to have 5,000-plus school kids just going ballistic in the building. And what I love, Scott, is in these games, uh, when we have both the, the Catholic board and the public board uh, come to uh, various games uh, throughout the season for school day, I can feel my booth shake under my feet <laughs> when they get really loud and excited. I love that feeling. So I'm really looking forward to it. And it's going to be a, a good matchup with the Barry Colts last night. Two teams that don't like each other all that much. So the, the kids are going to be in for one heck of a treat on Wednesday. How do schools get involved in this? Uh, it's by going uh, through our office. So either through the Bulldogs Foundation. Uh, and, of course, the Bulldogs Foundation does an incredible job with the, uh, the breakfast program for schools in feeding kids. And then uh, working with uh, our office and then, it's really um, our ticket staff uh, distributing emails to the school board and getting involved that way. Uh, reach out to the Hamilton Bulldogs. Let us know that you want your school to be involved, and we can get you right on into these games. So moving forward, if there's anybody listening in the Hamilton area that we haven't got to before for any reason at a school, reach out to us. Let us know. We'd love to make room for even more kids to pack into the building. And noise is clearly a factor during these games, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And the Bulldogs have always fed off that. The record in school day games is outstanding. And we've had some wild finishes, an overtime game with Matt Strome batting a puck out of the air. Uh, We've seen, you know, and when you've seen the big crowds in the building, go back to game seven against Windsor, 12,000 fans. The Bulldogs come out with a victory. 13,000 at the outdoor showcase. Bulldogs come out with a victory. Hmm. Every time that number goes up, the Bulldogs play at their very best. It really is a community team, Scott. They feed off that support. All right, Wednesday, November 16th against the Barry Colts uh, in town at First Ontario Centre for the school day game. And if you want to win your tickets, coming up uh, after the 5 o'clock news with Hammerhead Trivia. Reed Duffy with his play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. Reed, thanks for the time. Good luck. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. 
Joining us now, Ron Foxcroft, Canadian businessman, Fox uh, Fox 40 creator, Fox 40 whistle, 40 ways of the Fox, CEO of Fluke Transport, former honorary colonel with the Argyle Regiment, chairman of the Argyle Commemorative Fundraising Campaign. Ron Foxcroft is with us now. Ron, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. I got a little bit of a cold and a little bit of laryngitis, so I apologize now, but Let's let the world sing because uh, the world needs to be united. There's a lot of strife going on, a lot of strife going on in the world today. And I think on November the 11th, it symbolizes the fact that we need uh, more, more united, uh, more united people in the world today and less strife. You know, you bring up an interesting point, Ron, because we've just finished a, uh, or whatever we are, wherever we are, after a two and a half year global pandemic, as you mentioned, certainly uh, a divisive world. There's a time when we didn't pay as much time to, rem- or as much attention to Remembrance Day as we do now. It seems that we have much more interest. Does it feel different this year because of what we've been through, because of the divisiveness? Uh, do, do you think it's different this year, Ron? No doubt about it. In fact, you had a teacher on your show earlier, a teacher from Ancaster, and I want Mr. to applaud. So, uh, yeah, I want to applaud some of the things that he said. Uh, number one, he explained that some young soldiers joined the troops to to go to war for adventure, and he explained yeah. uh, once they go over there for adventure, they find out it isn't exactly venture; it's adventure. It's the real deal. The other thing he said, and and this is profound, he said, freedom is not free. And uh, I I think that uh, Remembrance Day is is a reminder to everybody, freedom is not free, and there's so many veterans, there's so many people that serve, some people that uh, are fallen now, that fought for our freedom, for our democracy, and and you know, it is different, Scott, and, and he also made a very good point. It's been different since 9-11. 9-11 yeah, has changed yeah. us and, and reminded us. Today, Scott, uh, I went up to Warplane Heritage and gave a speech, and like you were emotional when, when Rick Samprin made the tribute to hmm. Veterans and Remembrance Day. Well, when they played the national anthem today, and I looked out there with almost 2,500 audience, many veterans, many veterans that have served, it was an emotional, it was a heart tug for me because they were playing the national anthem, and I was looking at these veterans out there that had served. In addition, Scott, there was a half a dozen veterans that had served between the ages of 95 and 102, 102 wow. years of age. They were there. They were tributed individually and introduced individually, Scott, and they stood up. The audience gave each one individually a standing ovation. You yeah. talk about emotion. That was emotion at the highest level. You know, it's interesting when you see veterans of that era or even younger veterans uh, who, who, you know, uh, post-World War II and such, and you see the emotion in their eyes. You have to wonder what they're thinking at those moments when, when we have these memorials. You do, Scott. That's a very good point. And you also have to realize how brave they are and how they were dedicated, how they had passion for their country and how much they sacrificed. 
The other thing, Scott, the best 12 years of my life have been serving with the Argyle Regiment, hmm. in particular as, as the honorary colonel. And, and as you know, it was at a, a difficult time when Corporal Nathan mm-hmm. Cirillo got killed, and uh, we met the Queen, who was our colonel-in-chief. So, you know, at the Argyles, uh, we made a commitment to never forget the fallen. So today, I must tell you this story. We tributed a former Argyle, as his name was Private Alex Laba, a very interesting soldier, a Ukrainian-Canadian who emigrated from Ukraine in 18, around 1898, his family did, and he lived in Grimsby. He joined the Argyle Regiment in 1944, Five foot eight, 138 pounds, blonde for adventure. Alex Laba from Grimsby, Ontario, a Ukrainian, a Canadian. And we tributed him. He got killed in action. And today, 14 members of the Laba family attended the ceremony. And we tributed Alex Laba and we played, Corporal Sanderson from the Argyles played the Lamont on the bagpipe oh, for yeah. the entire audience and 14 members of the Laba family. Scott, there wasn't a dry eye. There was a hmm. waterworks tribute to Alex Laba. And you know what? This is what we have to do. We can never forget the fallen. And, you know, especially now considering what's happening in Ukraine, how this just, the struggle, this battle just continues. It's it's never it's over. You, uh, it's just terrible. You know, Scott, uh, one Argyle veteran put it, you know, death in battle, uh, he wrote many times, you're cut down in an instant, a page now to remain forever blank. There's an end, but no conclusion. That's an mm. accurate way to describe uh, a death in 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 war and and you're right scott with everything that's going on in ukraine i i think and i hope it's bringing attention to uh the fact that our freedom is not free it it does take sacrifice it does take realization that a lot of people a lot of soldiers men and women went before us so that we would have freedom and democracy well said. Ron Foxcroft with us, Fox 40, Fluke Transport, and former Honorary Colonel with the Argyle Regiment. Ron, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. What does Remembrance Day mean for Indigenous veterans in 2022? Let's bring in Bill Shedd, retired Lieutenant Commander in the Royal Canadian Navy and former Regional Director for Veterans Affairs Canada and a member of Pegasus First Nation and is with us now. Bill, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. You bet your votes. So what what was it like for you to sign up, Bill? What made you decide you wanted to enlist? You wanted to be a part of uh, of uh, the services? Well, I joined the Navy, and my dad and two of his brothers had served in the Second World War in the Navy. Um, that may not have been the biggest impetus to get me into the forces, but I did have an opportunity to go to military college uh, 
because I attended uh, for the first three years of my career, Collège Militaire of Saint-Jean. Um, that was, the I wouldn't say the real attraction, but that was sort of like the icing on the cake where you'd be able to get an education and uh, get a get an entry into the to the um, officer uh, ca- uh, ranks of the Canadian Navy. What was it that attracted you? Was it the chance to get your education? Was it a chance to be trained to 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 move forward, or was it the life? Was it the service? What it was all about? All of the above. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing life. But in the Navy, it, it was for me. Uh, certainly, I had the opportunity to go to sea and see an awful lot of the world, and I did serve with some tremendous shipmates and it that was the that was really what made oh life interesting for me for me as a as a naval officer and as a as a shipmate to all those fine people that i served with many of them were uh, second world war veterans uh they had some amazing stories my commanding officer in a frigate by the name of hmcs Fort Erie was a fellow by the name of yogi jensen Actually, it was L.B. Jensen, Latham B. Uh, Jensen, and he was sunk, uh, or ship was sunk, and he was, uh, when he was doing his training as a junior officer, he was assigned to the hood, and just before it sailed on its final voyage, he was landed to do his lieutenant's exams and he missed the sailing and he missed, mm. he missed being sunk in hood. However, he, he was serving in another ship that was sunk in the Atlantic. I think it was the Ottawa. Wow. Uh, he survived. By How the way. Much... <laughs> he did survive. Yeah, he did survive. Yes. <laughs> what, what about like the family I tradition? I tell the story if I didn't know if he got <laughs> That's, that's a good point, isn't it? Uh, How much does the family tradition influence continuing to serve, the, the fact that other um, members of the family? Yeah. I th- I think there is some influence. Um, in my case, I was born just, well, three weeks, four weeks after the Second World War started. And in in my time as a youth, most of the people, most of the adults that I knew, male adults, had served. I live in a small town of about, at the time, 5,000. And we have one street where I used to deliver papers, Dufferin Avenue. And 31 individuals on one short block of that street enlisted in the uh, Second World War. Five from one family, including two women from that family. So... You can see that the influence of people who would serve uh, would have on 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 my life as as a young person, because it was the veterans that built the arenas, that led the sea cadets and the Boy Scouts, and the sea did everything that that made life for the young people in the town of Selkirk a little bit more enjoyable. And they were the ones that actually told stories about their their time in the service. And it may not have encouraged us to join up, but they did say that there was some, that they did not regret having served, despite the fact that it was during the period of war. 
What was it like being an indigenous person in the service? Well, uh, it was rather interesting because uh, in my time, uh, there were an awful lot of indigenous people who served in the Navy. Um, In 1960, the Navy was just 50 years old. And a tradition that some of these people had, some of the senior officers had with regard to the training that they had in, in, in uh, England with the Royal Navy said that they should deliver a totem pole to the, uh, to, to, as their gift for 50 years of training and association with, with this particular hmm. base in England. And they asked for volunteers who were serving at the time who happened to be indigenous. And I was the senior guy as a young sub-lieutenant with about four years in. And everybody else that was with me uh, were also of of a similar age and a similar length of experience. But they were from all different branches of of the Navy. There were radiomen, there were signalmen, there were bosuns. So the, the 15 of us had the responsibility to design a role for ourselves in this presentation. Uh, And we were given free reign. The senior officers had every confidence that we would do a good job. So my experience in in short was absolutely positive. I I couldn't have asked for better mentors, better friends, better shipmates, and better, uh, what do you want to call it? Just conditions. I think that uh, my experience was not very different from all the other individuals of Indigenous ancestry who had served. I've yet to meet a person who really said that they were poorly treated in the the service. That was my next question. Yeah, they, they were... They, when you're in the service, you really build teams, and you yeah. know that if you were with a, with a, 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 a crew in a ship or in an airplane or in a foxhole, you know that your back is going to be protected by your mate, and you're going to protect him. So uh, that bond is is something rare. You don't see it very often, civilian street. And I think that's what happens when you get out of the out of out of uniform. You really miss that comradeship and and the support of your of your uh, of your mates. Um, and it has nothing to do with being indigenous or non-indigenous. It has everything to do with with that bond that you form with a, with your shipmates or your crewmates or 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 your comrades in arms in the, in in the army. What does Remembrance Day mean to you now, Bill? Well, Remembrance Day traditionally has been for to remember the fallen, and I I I I take that to heart. Um, in in Selkirk, we have a cenotaph, and there are two names on it that I really look at every time I go down there. One is from the First World War, a fellow by the name of Kenneth Asham. Now, Ken was 19 years old when he enlisted. And he was killed just before the Battle of Vimy Ridge in a training accident as they were 
rehearsing for the Battle of Vimy Ridge. He was just 19. He, he no, sorry, he's 20. And he had a, uh, uh, a young daughter just before he left. The second name I look at is a fellow by the name of Gordon Beresford. Gordon uh, was 19 years old when he enlisted, and he served as an ordinary seaman in HMCS St. Croix. Now, St. Croix was sunk uh, on the 20th of September, 1943, by a German submarine using a homing torpedo. Not everybody was lost when the ship sank. They were rescued by another ship called HMS uh, Inchin, a British destroyer. Unfortunately, that ship was sunk the next day with everybody on it, with the exception of two, one Canadian and one Brit. And the Canadian was William Fisher. So two ships down, and then the submarine itself was was sunk uh, four months later with all hands on. So you, you see three ships from three different navies of three mm. different countries lost and only one survivor or two survivors rather and all the other people gone. The oldest person on the submarine was the skipper and he was 27. And the age of the people serving in the Canadian Navy at that time, and I would say the British Navy were, were pretty similar to their youth. I don't so many stories. Being, so many stories, yes, so many stories. But that's that's the nature of Remembrance Day is to remember those people who lost their lives, remember their stories, and and to retell them because uh, some of them are quite poignant. And and uh, when we realize how young the people are, you you realize what we have lost. Uh, but those individuals who have returned have left their mark on their communities and their families. They, they have raised families, built homes, and uh, it saw that their families got the, the very best that could that they could get. And our communities have benefited from their, uh, their community service, particularly from organizations like the Legion and the Army, Navy, Air Force, and other veterans organizations. Can't say enough about what they have done for us. Bill Shedd with us, Indigenous, retired Lieutenant Commander, Royal Canadian Navy, former Regional Director with Veterans Affairs Canada. Bill, thanks so much for sharing your stories with us on this day, and thank you. Not at all. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up after the news at 6 o'clock, the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. It is Friday, Scott. Who could not be well? <laughs> hey, I hear you. Uh, so uh, your thoughts on this Remembrance Day, uh, sort of the first one that we've all got to get together after a uh, COVID pandemic. I was talking to Ron Foxcroft early, earlier. He was mentioning, you know, we're, we're kind of in a divisive world. Does a Remembrance Day help us refocus or do we just get back to the same old crap once it's over? Uh, I would suspect it's probably the latter, but I do think that it's um, I do think it's healthy for sure to have something that makes us step away from our own gripes and fights and disagreements and uh, think about something that is bigger and more important than those things. Again, how long that lasts, uh, you know, you'd like to think that it lasts a long time. And yet I'll tell you something, Scott, I will bet you money that by tomorrow, most people are hurriedly putting up their Christmas decorations and Remembrance Day is well in the rearview mirror. So, Hmm. you know, who knows? 
Good point. Um, just reading some breaking news now. Sick Kids uh, Hospital in Toronto canceling sur- uh, surgeries to create more room in its ICUs. Even more chatter today about the need to mask up to save our uh, failing healthcare system. We had this conversation last night. Are we just going to put masks on? Uh, and, and believe me, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't. I mean, we, we got to do what we got to do here. Um, but, but do you think it's different when people are putting masks on uh, because of a a variant or a uh, a global pandemic, which we know very little about. Uh, do you think it's the same uh, for that as it is in our situation right now, when it's simply that the people are, are are sick, not just from not from COVID, from the normal flu, from the seasonal type stuff, but this is creating the same sort of pressure on our hospitals that COVID nineteen did. So we're basically masking to stop our our our, our healthcare system from becoming overloaded. Will we just get caught up in the mask? and do what we have to do or will we finally stand up and say enough's enough because i can't believe scott we're going through this again mm. not because of a deadly variant but because our already crumbling healthcare system is too fragile and our poor healthcare workers are on their knees Look, well is it, is it different this time different Last last night, as we talked about yesterday, last night I threw open the phones and I asked people, would you be willing, are you eager to do this again or are you going to say no? Uh, to heck with it. I've done that. And I was surprised how many people said, yeah, I'm all in, I'm all okay with this. A- except it was very interesting because one of the callers, and I think you and I talked about this yesterday, you know, my memory is poor, but I think we talked about this yesterday. One of the concerns is... If we're talking about kids, one of the thoughts is their, their um, what do you call it, their, their ability to fight the stuff off, the, the immunity. The immunity, yeah. Is no, not, that's true. I, I talked to epidemi- epidemiologists today saying the same thing. It's low immunity it's right low now. It's low because they haven't been at school. They haven't been around other kids. They haven't had cold. They haven't had flu. And now if we're saying, okay, now we're going to keep masking up, at some point we're all going to have low immunity so that we do make the flu into something that is far worse than it has been in the past. Or a cold even could be far worse than it was in the past. At some point, Scott, like we've had this discussion before about why are so many kids allergic to peanut butter now? Yeah. There are, there are theories and I'm not speaking as a doctor, but there are theories that one of the reasons is kids are not exposed to different allergens early in their life. We are so careful now that then when they finally are, they don't have the ability to fight it. The point being if we might we be creating more problems yes it's difficult right now with all these people who are in the hospital but there's a reason might we be making an even bigger problem for down the road by trying to solve the problem that we allegedly have right now i don't know the answer to that but it makes a lot of sense it does totally and i asked the doctor that and he gave me this example remember the term flatten the curve he, he said we're absolutely right you taking wearing the mask all the time is not the answer but he said we may have to do it now to flatten the curve in order to get them but back wouldn't off we again then, but wouldn't that mean yeah. that next year we'll have the same problem yes. to flatten the curve and the yes. year after yeah, yeah and i just think and especially with kids like how many I don't know the number. I don't have a number in front of me. How many kids, I'm talking like, let's say under 10 years old, how many kids died of COVID? They didn't have another underlying condition. They weren't compromised. How many kids died of COVID? I would say the number is small. And yet we masked all of those kids. And maybe maybe if you're very much older, 
yeah, you should get your mask back on. Or maybe if you live with someone who's compromised, yeah, you should get your mask back on. But maybe we should say, yeah, but kids, don't do it. Because even if you get it, it's probably not going to be that severe and we can help build your immunity. I don't know. I don't know. But it just seems a blanket statement. Just seems almost too easy. It's too much of a fallback and it doesn't really resolve it by the sounds of things. I think Canadians will do it because that's what we do. Yes. But I don't think we're okay with it this time because the reason's different. We're not doing it to protect ourselves from a deadly virus. We're doing it because we've neglected our healthcare system for decades. Well, we're not and doing I don't it. Th- and not, I don't think people are okay with that. No, and we're not doing it last time. I think many, many, many people did it out of fear. I'm fearful yep, yep, that I will yep. get this and die. Yep. If that fear is not there... I don't know. I think there will be Canadians who will go along with it happily. In fact, I know there are based on the phone calls. There's plenty who will, but I think there's plenty who will also now say, forget this. I'm not doing this. And you know what? You will see then, I think a lot more squabbles at stores or theaters or whatever else when people show up and don't want to wear that mask. Before we just said, fine, I'll do it. Now, I think you could end up with some of those situations we worried about that the staff are going to take the brunt of anger from people because I think that Mm. will happen. I think you might be right. It'll be interesting to see how this all pans out in the next little while. All right, Scott, as always, thank you so much. Have a great show. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can uh, also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great weekend, Scott. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always greatly appreciated. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. I was in a variety store buying some stuff for the weekend. The guy in front of me, he said one of the most simply profound things like yeah, they were they were saying goodbye and you know have a nice weekend and blah blah blah. And this guy said, "Don't forget to remember." You know, being November the 11th, I thought, what a cool thing to say. 